Welcome to What's Next, Cornet Global's podcast that puts members on the microphone with thought-provoking, profession-shaping conversations and commentary. Hi, this is Tim Venable of Cornet Global. Joining me today are Andrew Miller and Sandra Panera with Freelogics. They're here to talk with us about the opportunity and the need for corporate real estate to embrace real-time occupancy. Thanks for being here, guys. Right on, Tim. Thanks for having us. Great to be on the pod. Great. Uh, if you would, please introduce yourselves and, and Relogics just a little bit further. I think you're familiar to our Hornet Global audience, but just um, tell us a little bit more about yourselves if you're coming. Yeah, I will kick it off, Tim. I'm Andrew Miller, founder and CEO up here at Relogics. Uh, Relogics is a data company. We have been uh, been in the corporate. I've been in the corporate real estate game uh, 15 years now, providing technology solutions specifically to the corporate real estate world. And Relogics is deep into data, and we are one of the pioneers in IoT sensor technology in our domain. We kicked off that side of our business about six years ago now. So I would say that we are at the forefront of what we call collecting real-time data, and we work with corporate real estate organizations all around the world now. We're Canadian-based, but majority of our business is now all, all around the world with large corporate real estate portfolios and customers. Okay, great. Sandra, any, any uh, thoughts from, from you? Yeah, um, so I'm the Director of Analytics, Insights, and Innovation at Relogics. I actually joined Relogics in October of 2019. I am, uh, the role I play actually is a resident subject matter expert, bridging subject matter expertise and corporate real estate analytics to essentially help companies understand the art of the possible when it comes to the data sources that they have so that they can achieve their objectives. My passion for technology, corporate real estate, and for data analytics actually emerged when I joined Nike back in 1996. In the 10 years that I was there, my role allowed me to wear many hats in office services, facilities management, you name it, I did it. (laughs) You know, I did everything from like max to managing security, space planning, retrofitting, negotiating leases. So I got exposed to a lot of data in that timeframe. And uh, over the years, I was fortunate to have worked in corporate real estate for other companies, so actually working on their teams, but also worked as a global consultant with multiple corporate real estate teams where I became exposed to even more data. And what I thought was interesting about that is that while the data was different, it was oddly similar. And that's kind of what guided me into the research and analytics side of corporate real estate. Fantastic. What a wonderful background. Great to have you both on the podcast today. So here's my first question, guys. Corporate real estate is at a critical inflection point. We're facing two challenges. Historic occupancy data more or less went out the window with the pandemic, and now the hybrid workplace is still very much in flux. So how can corporate real estate executives forecast space demand in the midst of all this uncertainty? Yeah, Tim, I'll take that one for sure. I have to say it's definitely a really exciting time to be in the corporate real estate game. It's exciting, but yet I think right now there's no shortage of challenges for all us real estate professionals out here because of the fact that the commercial real estate industry has certainly been uh, disrupted. And Mark Gilbreth, a friend of mine over CEO over at Liquid Space, he coined it as the trillion dollar dumpster fire. A little... uh, <laughs> a little bold and a little out there, but, but I laughed when I heard it. I thought, oh man, that's spot on. But you know, it's undeniable for sure. I think 
hybrid work is is here to stay and the purpose of uh, the office is definitely evolving right now there's no question there either you know historical occupancy patterns maybe pre-pandemic patterns of data as a data shop out the window for sure but certainly still useful in some sense of establishing a baseline but how do corporate real estate teams forecast space demand right now really good question really tough to do. I think of it when I talk to other CRE executives, I think you, you've got to learn how to see around corners now. And, you know, data is the only way to make that possible, I think. Um, but it's, it's really tough today with all the uncertainty that's going on out there and all the blind spots. And so, you know, when I, when I look back, like I've been in this business so long now, 15 years odd. And uh, when we were back in the early days, when I got in the business, we had things called CAFM tools and life was easy because we'd establish we set up these databases, right? And we were just, it's about how many seats do I have and which what are occupied, what are vacant and pretty straightforward model. Impossible to keep the data accurate, but back in those days, the model was a little simpler than it is today for sure. Reality is that like that didn't work very well, even, even all the way through those years, tracking supply and demand of, of space is still really difficult to do. Has always been, we got in the sensor technology game because we knew there had to be a better way to do it because just walking around with a clipboard and a global portfolio is obviously impossible and it never was possible. And another reason I got into the business, because I, I believe and always firmly believe that the world's uh, real estate has sat empty. 50% of it occupied at best, but the rest of it's sitting empty most of the time. And that was has been and was good enough for all those years, I think. Uh, everyone had a seat, but what a massive waste of space. And it's terribly inefficient and crushing on, on the environment. And then, so now to get back to kind of the question here, we've been three years in this massive uh, disruption. Occupancy now globally from, from what we see every day and what Sandra studies all the time is probably below 25% still. And so we've got a long way to go. Macro, you know, the macroeconomic situation around the world is quite scary. Companies are looking to cut costs. Real estate spend is... It's probably one of the biggest targets. So the CRE leaders right now are on the hot seat. They got to step up. They got to deliver a strategy. They're now in the boardroom. You know, this is really important. Top of mind for CEOs and CIO or CFOs in the world. Real estate's top of mind. And they have to have data to inform those decisions. It's pretty straightforward. I don't think they can do it without data. They have to answer the simplest questions now. They have to answer how many people are returning, who's returning, when, and where are they returning, how often, and, you know, what spaces are they using when they're, when they're returning. But I think the real, real big challenge is, is that pattern is in unfolding in front of us week over week. We're all watching it unfold. It's not a historical pattern we're studying as a benchmark. This is something we're all struggling with day to day to see what's going to happen. Well, fall's coming, September, October, we're watching it. We're all kind of hoping that lots more folks will return to the office in our world, but nobody knows exactly for sure. So like the historical data patterns, again, establish that baseline, but I think real-time data now, forward-looking data, capturing data as it's happening is the future of our business. And no chance, I think, that a CRE exec or the leaders of occupancy and strategy can see around any corners without that data. What a great way to put it. That's the challenge, seeing around the corner. So got to have help, got to have data to make good decisions. Yeah. You mentioned return to office. That's been the big theme these past few months. Originally, it was, you know, municipalities locked down. Everybody works remotely. Then the cry was, okay, we've got to get back in the office, return to the office. And so that continues to occupy mostly a blind spot um, for the majority of companies today. Everybody's at a different point with that. 
what would you say uh, is the way that corporate real estate executives can create that flexible and elastic workplace that's really necessary for riding out the inevitable swells and challenges that are coming? Yeah, another good question, Tim, for sure. Well, I I think one of the most exciting parts for me and I, the last three years has been really fun in the, in the sense that I think it's a level playing field. And what I mean by that is that we've been on the phone for almost three years now with real estate folks all over the planet working on the same problem all of a sudden. You know what I mean? Like it's the same corporate real estate challenge in Hong Kong and Singapore as it is up here in Canada, sitting in Ottawa. Like we're all struggling with these same unknowns and same challenges. And it really is, I think, as a corporate real estate profession kind of a aligned us all around. We're in this together. We got to try to figure out this problem. We can't see what's coming. And so you get on the phone with folks and everybody's staring at each other going, what are you learning? What are you seeing? What's happening? What's been happening there? What's going on in Canada? Who are your clients? What are they experiencing? Can you share benchmarks? Can you share? Help us. And everybody's sharing. And I found that to be uh, pretty exciting as a community, especially with Cornet. And I think with the big show coming up, I'm thinking, geez, it's going to be a lot of sharing going on because everyone's struggling, right? Absolutely. Um, so I think there's there's comfort in, you know, I mean, I hate to say misery loves company, but there's, com- there's comfort in those numbers of all of us working on the challenge together. But nobody knows what's going to unfold. Nobody knows right now. Like hybrid, it's like predicting the stock market, right? Hy- hybrid is here to stay. No question. No question in my mind. And I think everybody's mind's here to stay to a certain degree, obviously. How widely will it be adopted? How long will it go on? What's going to happen? That's the blind spot. Nobody knows the answer to that. And anyone who does is is guessing. Educated guesses, but they're still guesses nonetheless. And the workplace of the future just definitely has to be more flexible and elastic because you're dealing with unknown. It's really, you know, when you boil it all the way down, our life is just simply about a supply and demand equation, right? How much do we have? And what's the demand for it? What's that equation? How do we figure that out? But if you don't have the demand side, if you don't know what the demand for the office space is because everybody's still working from home and working from third places and all, we're not sure exactly what that's going to be. You don't have the demand side of that. It's almost impossible to try to figure out what's, you know, how to properly inform your strategy without all that data in place. So we like to call it, you need to start to understand people's intent to use space and then model and, and track behavior so you can start to see how that pattern's truly going to unfold what people say they're going to do coming in the office two to three days a week versus what really happens is what again is is a blind spot that people don't know so i'm thinking that the, the patterns of work are going to really define the types of spaces you need moving forward you need to understand those patterns we all are talking about enabling um, a better employee experience we hear that constantly right now in the space everybody's exploring experience but that's a moving target as well i don't think that's well understood how we're going to do that but because i when i think about that i think about well even in our own company, you know, you got people that are the experience of in the office, but they got the experience of working from home and the experience of working at the coffee shop. Now we've all started to maybe embrace a little bit of co-working. So people are working at co-working spaces that we're setting up to be flexible. But, you know, the, it's a lot more complex than the problem we used to have to deal with, which was just a real estate portfolio, which is just our office. Now the whole, what is our portfolio is an expanded world of all these other third places. So 
exactly, you know, uh, predicting space demand was always the, you know, the need for CRE, always hard to do, try to align with business, understand what their strategies and directions are. That was never easy then, and companies wanted flexibility because they never knew what they were going to be doing. But now, as you said, it's even harder because it's not just a matter of matching so many square feet, so much density, so many square feet per person. It's just a completely different world now and, and much harder than it used to be. Yeah, no kidding, right, Tim? And then you think about the poor folks sitting in corporate real estate. Like, this is all new stuff as an industry. Like, we don't have the model worked out. Like, and we're we're data folks. That's all we do all day. Other folks have other responsibilities, right? It's a very big technical challenge to figure out. And it, the blind spot is something that we're all working on together. But it's definitely an, exci it's an exciting challenge because that's what we're trying to solve for. But I think it's a daunting challenge for sure for lots of folks that just don't have the data analytical expertise or the data itself. And they're trying to tackle this for a large corporation and I, or large companies with big portfolios. And it's, it's interesting times. Absolutely. Well, you're right in the middle of the expertise and uh, the work that you're doing is so critical right now because every big corporate is trying to figure this out. They need data. They need help. So great to have you uh, sharing your insights here today. So you mentioned data, obviously, Andrew. And so my next question is this one. What's the critical role that context plays in that data puzzle? What can organizations potentially miss out on only by looking at a snapshot of information as opposed to that, that real-time group of insights and patterns that you're, that you're alluding to? I'll take this one. <laughs> I'll, I'll, throw, I'll throw that one to the experts. Sandra, you jump in there, please. Thanks. Uh, it's actually a very loaded question, so I'll sort of try to pull that one apart. Uh, I'll first tackle the, uh, the part about context. So in essence, uh, context is really what gives analytics meaning. Right now, as Andrew is saying, there's a lot of focus on understanding all the metrics, like you know what's the daily office occupancy, the utilization, the dwell, the turn, the vacancy, all of that stuff, and what does all that mean? Um, but what's fascinating to me is how the meaning of those metrics continue to be focused mostly on space reduction opportunities and cost savings avoidance. That's kind of an expected outcome. I tend to look at that more as a, an outcome than a driver. I think what's important is to take a step back and consider what the organization values. You know, as I said earlier, you know, my background, having had the opportunity to work with early adopters, that's kind of where the thinking was. It was, yes, there's the real estate component, you know, obviously coming out of the global financial crisis way back in the early 2000s, lots of excess real estate companies looking like, for options of what do we do with all this excess real estate, but there was an upside to that. It was, we're reducing real estate, but then what is this going to mean from a positioning point of view in terms of who we are as an organization? And so I think as we, as we look at that, you know, as I said, over the years, I've read many annual reports for these Fortune 500 companies that we're always reporting on moving the needle when it comes to things like wellness, diversity and inclusion, sustainability, community building. And these are all things that companies are still talking about today. So the space use metrics absolutely matter for sure. But what they mean when it comes to future positioning of the company is way more important because it sends a clear message. And we've seen that in social media with, you know, certain companies postulating a position and then you get all the backlash because it's not agreeable for the direction that most people think that companies should be taking, right? So I think people are much more aware of what the decision or the lack of decision means longer term. 
And so everybody's watching. Regarding the second part of the question on observing just um, snapshot information, real-time patterns and trends, or what we call moment in time data, drive very now decisions that positively impact experiences. A great example of this in action is the censored parking garage experience. So think about how your experience would be different if without information guiding you, you're circling around trying to find a parking spot in a you know, garage versus just driving in and being directed to a level where you're most likely to find a spot, right? Which of those two would be the better experience? And so it's the same thing in terms of what's happening in the office is that, yes, there's this, you know, this mad rush to figure out how much space is needed, but it's very quickly going to shift into now that we've reduced the space, what is the experience that we're trying to either maintain or improve for the employees that do actually require the space. A key difference to point out too is that the moment in time data can't be used for longer term or permanent decisions like how much space to exit or how to redesign your office space. That typically comes from observing data over time because the trend is what establishes confidence. So I often like to think of the trend line as the organization's lifeline. That desired pat pattern for that lifeline needs to be flat, which doesn't mean the office is dead, but you know, usually the flatness indicates that there's consistency or normalization of the behavior. That's the new normal for your company. And if it's not flat, that usually is telling you that it's too early to make a decision and that you should wait because eventually that line will normalize itself. Fascinating, okay. Let's talk about the distinction between a couple of different types of data. Um, Andrew and Sandra, behavioral data and intentional data. And I think I hear you addressing this to some extent already. So behavioral data has to do with what people actually do. And then you have intentional data, what people plan to do. And that has become more important than ever. That's always been important, but it's become more important than ever in understanding employees' actual space needs today, given today's uh, situation. So in your view, what else should mobile real estate executives know about how to gather and understand behavioral data and understand that they're um, able to look at the appropriate level of granularity to drive good decisions, effective actions? Another great question. I think, again, there's a lot, a lot to, to unfold here, but if we think about intent, it's very different from actual, for sure. Uh, I spoke earlier before about office design and the one thing about office spaces that's interesting is they're designed with activities in mind. So you have spaces that are provisioned for things like scheduled meetings, ad hoc activities, uh, focus activities, social collaborative types of activities, for example. The number of seats by type, by space type, are usually proportionately allocated based on an understanding of demand, which is usually done or previously done through observation studies. So those two to three weeks where you're in there and you're just observing what people are doing. The key difference between observing in-person versus using technology is the number of data points that are being captured. And that number of data points is really what drives the confidence to make the necessary changes, right? The more you're seeing of a certain activity, obviously that's telling you, hey, something, something needs to change. Uh, what's interesting though is, is that... Um, you know, I tend to think, or having since joining Realogix, not necessarily being exposed to, you know, sensor-related data, I'm seeing it right now that technology wins. If you had to compare observation to technology in terms of how you're capturing the data, the technology will win by a landslide. And you're going to get naysayers that are going to say, you know, you can't see the behaviors, um, you know, but that's not necessarily true. 
And this is something that's just recently come to revelation for me in particular, where, you know, sure, you can't see, you know, if someone is uh, typing an email or, you know, talking on the phone, but is that really, does that really matter? You know, at the end of the day, there's software out there that does that and everybody's up in arms about it because it's so intrusive, but you can actually see behaviors in the data based on two metrics. Number one is the preference for the space and the amount of time that's being spent in that space. And for me in particular, because I actually used to do the observation studies, I can quickly correlate what that activity, like what we're seeing in the data and what that actually translates to in terms of what kind of behavior is that that would yield five minutes of use or 15 minutes of use relative to where that that person or that physical body is in, in the space. And so it is possible. You just need to kind of have that context or that knowledge of knowing what you're seeing and to be able to translate uh, to translate that. I think the other thing is when you look at data that illustrates what people actually do, as I said, you're measuring preference for particular spaces and the time spent in those spaces. And over time, those patterns start to emerge. This is really foundational if you're trying to explore ways to improve the design of your space to better suit how people actually use it. Before the pandemic, when space was being used not as intended, usually there was two options. You were either policing the behavior, you know, cracking the whip to say, you're not supposed to use this space this particular way, or you took that knowledge and you modified the space to better suit how people use the space. One requires change management, the other doesn't, right? And you can probably guess which one, <laughs> which one is the easier one of the two. Um, when it comes to knowing how deep to go in uh, analysis or in the analysis, it's really subjective. It really depends on what you want to know and how you choose to identify the need. So if you're looking to understand the demand for different spaces, for example, to inform what kind of furniture mix you need, then the lowest level of information is needed, which is actually at the seat levels. You want to understand specifically what types of spaces or seats are being used, how many bums and seats, as we, we say in the industry, you kind of want to understand at the lowest level. But if you're trying to understand flow, for example, then you know you can look at information that's aggregated at a higher level, like maybe looking at a floor or an area or a zone or a combination of those that tells you kind of what's going on and where are people gravitating to in the space, but not necessarily getting right down to the furniture specifics. So that level of granularity really depends on what it is that you're trying to do. And that's really what should set the stage for how you approach understanding workspace is having that set of questions ready to go so that you you know what you want to ask your data when you start to to see it. Thanks, Andrew. That's great. We're really getting a, a, a great understanding of all this thanks to your expertise and Andrew's uh, uh, today. Thanks very much. And you've alluded to all this already, I think both of you have, but here's, here's my next question. Why is dynamic occupancy so critical with the future of corporate real estate and the broader workforce and what can and should corporate real estate do to adapt their strategy for future growth? Tim, I'll jump on that one. So as I mentioned, I got into this business uh, back in the day when struggling and thinking about how do we deal with all these half empty buildings, but holy cow, now here we are and the problems got worse, not better. The buildings are all sitting three quarters empty right now. So it's 15 years in the game and here we are and with again uh, where we are in tech and macro level we got a lot of companies that are under pressure now to reduce spend so it really is a good 
a good time to affect change. And I think what the notion of or the words dynamic occupancy has come up in the last year and dynamic occupancy is really something that I think that's come from the capability of the technology and, and certainly from sensor technology. Dynamic occupancy in my mind is simply like the optimization of space. And I'll, paint, I'll give an example makes it easier to uh, kind of paint the picture here. So imagine organizations have found a way to uh, three floors in an office. They found a way to shed two floors. They're down to one floor. They're trying to run that floor as effectively as they can. Now, I, I will make a point that shedding the empty floors and getting rid of them, talking to clients most recently, the ability to sublease and get rid of space right now is not easy. So unfortunately, companies may have three floors, but they'll just make two floors dark still pay the rent and have one floor where they're going to send their people. Exactly. Uh, that's that's going to be a tough go for everybody because the money's still on the balance sheet there or you're paying the expense. But in a dynamic world, so you move to hybrid working, you know, fast forward, boy, we've been working on flex and hybrid for 15 years and it was only a small drop in the ocean, I think, as far as how much of the world's portfolios were, were flex, still pretty predominantly unassigned in the world, but you move to a hybrid model consolidate three floors down to maybe one, that floor is fully unassigned. Your people are out there saying, you know, they're working from home and they say they're coming into the office maybe a couple of times a week. You've got some co-working space, but you've got these floors and, and the challenge is how do you make them effective? And how do you come up with that optimal model? And it's a lot about the sharing ratios of where you set it out in the beginning, how many people are gonna use that floor, and then how do you slowly ratchet up that sharing ratio to reach a level of an optimal uh, use of that floor, which is the dynamic nature of it. So that floor is ebbing and flowing. We're really struggling to understand our demand side. People are coming and going. We're not sure what their behavior is going to be like. And so really you're trying to manage the peaks. Like it's, it's like the mountain on Wednesday, the pattern of, you know, what are the, challenges we're going to face on the floor we can't have people show up and there not be a seat for them because we didn't manage it well it will destroy our employee experience because they just why the, it's going to risk them not coming back in because oh man there's no there is no space we've got to avoid that but the other side of the coin is we can't go back to well let's just run it at 40 percent occupancy to avoid the risk of there not being enough seats so that's the history, right? The historical is just err on the side of underutilization and lower occupancy to not risk the fact that there will be not enough seats. So really this is a load balancing model. Dynamic occupancy means that we're trying to understand the patterns of data effectively enough so we can see the peaks and then we can um, make decisions as to how many people can use that floor uh, effectively over a period of time and get our, you know, get our occupancy up to somewhere maybe in the 60% range as a minimum where we might have been before or even higher if we're really, really effective on, on how we're managing that. So like dynamic occupancy, you're using all the data you can get your hands on. So what does that mean? You can, you can, your badge swipe data that we've always used our data from our booking system. And now uh, we can use sensor data as well as a real-time uh, method of, of seeing what's going on. And you're load balancing your floors. They're running dynamically. Uh, you're, you're then very elastic is the nature of it. Um, and I think that's the only hope of coming up with that optimal 
uh, use of space. Sandra, do you have thoughts on that as well? Yeah, and I think all the points Andrew has made are, are bang on. I think the other thing too is, I think about how space traditionally has been designed again, as I was talking about, you know, activity-based work and how every space kind of had a very sort of, you know, dedicated sort of intent. Um, I think that we're sort of entering an, uh, an era where, you know, that might actually go away. And so when you think about dynamic space planning, it's, you know, why do meeting room seats need to be dedicated to just meetings? I mean, if you are monitoring your space through sensors or whatever, you would have visibility to how much of the space is currently being used. So if people want to spread out, especially when you think about integration, right? Another thing, key thing of our, our business is integrating with like other data sources. So calendar data, room booking data, badging data. So specifically around calendar and room booking data, you have visibility to the intended use of those rooms. So you can quickly see that, okay, if there's not very many meetings planned for today, but we have a lot of people planning to come into the office or there's a lot of people dropping in, why not open up those other spaces to accommodate seating requirements that are not limited to just desks or to typical sort of traditional workspaces. It's kind of making it more open and available. And I think the part that's interesting is there's a lot of debate going on right now around, you know, the value of even just booking data. It's kind of like, you know, again, thinking about the way you used to plan space, you needed the booking tool because it was a way to sort of add some sort of organization to where and how people were going to use space. But, you know, is the future more about, you know, dropping in, needing the space? I mean, if you think about it, when you're working hybrid, a lot of the times there is some coordination, but a lot of people don't know what they're going to be doing two or three weeks from now. It's usually like a day or two. And if you're booking seats two, three weeks in advance, there isn't going to be an availability when you actually need it, right? So it's kind of perpetuating a problem that you're trying to solve for to say, okay, well, what happens if you eliminate that? We actually have a customer uh, in Asia who actually is not using a booking tool. And they're basically using the space and the sensors as a just-in-time solution where people just come in and they make their way to available spaces. And it's the same thing for meeting rooms. And I remember at the beginning thinking, well, isn't that going to be pure chaos? And it's not, right? So it's just a different way of working that just requires a slightly different mindset. But if everybody's on the same page, it certainly can work as we've seen. Love that example, that illustration. That's so different from our prior experience, but as you say, it works. That, that's fascinating. Yeah, and I throw it back on the booking. The whole paradigm of booking space is a scarcity model where you're booking space in the future for the risk of not having a space. So to, again, to change to change people's thinking of, oh my Lord, how do I, I what if I, I got a meeting coming up and I got to book a space in two weeks or I book all these recurring meeting, meetings for my sales team and nobody comes in. But that whole paradigm shift of can I trust the data to run it dynamically and just trust that the model will know when we need the space based on the pattern that's unfolding right and that'll be really tough for people to absorb but it has to work effectively or you kind of obviously you're going to lose the trust pretty quick exactly well I knew uh, I know that if I were an end user an occupier trying to manage a big portfolio I wouldn't dream of trying to move forward with that good data so I understand the importance of what you're talking about today um and now my last question um, uh, guys, is this one. What other aspects of this discussion are key for corporate real estate executives to know in creating an actionable path to right-sizing uh, that office space? Everyone seems to be of the mind that, yeah, in most cases, space will, will go down and be reduced to some extent. So what are your what are your thoughts on that? I'm going to go first, Sandra. If you want to tackle that one, or I'll go first. I'll go first. Okay. 
So here's what I think the big challenge ahead is with uh, the whole hybrid working world. So I, I, I think a lot about, again, the third spaces, the co-working spaces, the work from home, people sitting at home and everybody's working differently. And I'm the one in the chair at corporate real estate trying to figure out how to build a strategy around what kind of space do we need where those kind of build my strategy. How am I going to be able to collect any data to inform my decisions, collect any data about the folks that might be working from home and the folks that are working at the co-working spaces and the folks that are working anywhere in the world at the cottage? I'm not, the point is I'm, I'm starting to encroach into a world where it's privacy and data and privacy is a big, is a big challenge for us today. Nobody likes Alexa and Google telling me that I'm shopping for a bicycle when they, when they shouldn't even know about bicycles, but there they are telling me what I'm doing. And then I've started to hear this, this word out. Uh, I heard attendance quite a few times lately about attendance. And I was like, whoa, that takes me right back to high school attendance. Uh, are you in class? Exactly. And I never was. So I'd like, I just, yeah, I, was, <laughs> I was always that guy. So, but the, the point is this, it's attendance, but it's, it's, they're saying, oh, well, we need to know if people are coming into the office two to three days a week, like they said they were going to, because we need the, to, them to come back. And of course, that just really encroaches on the idea and flies right in the face of privacy, right? We, you're, you're trying to understand what's going on. Uh, attendance is a bad example of probably the most harsh, harsh that we're hearing. But I think it's a real conundrum because how do you effectively improve that employee experience if you don't truly understand people's patterns of use of space? So if you're blind to that and you don't know how often they're going to work from home, how often they're going to work in co-work, how, how often they're going to come into the office and you can't see that, you know, it's, it's, it's almost impossible in this new world of hybrid uh, to figure that out. And then, you know, it's a fairly basic data, but it's still quite private. So how often are you going to work from home or how often are, are you at the office and how often do you use the co-working site that we're paying for? So it's not super private data, but it's starting to cross the line a little bit, not too intrusive, but it's very, very challenging for folks to get their head around the fact that we just need some of that data to inform our strategy for all of us. You are working, you're working from anywhere. So is that private data? Is that company data? Is that like, where's the line? Um, and I think it's going to real, it's really going to be a tough couple of years while we, while we kind of try to overcome those challenges of, of, of understanding what's happening in the absence of people wanting to share their data. So uh, how do you see around the corner again, right? How do you see around exactly. the corner? Like you can't see around the corner if you if you can't collect any information, uh, you're gonna you're gonna be stuck. So I, I think it's an exciting time in CRE because it's a massive massive challenge uh, out there for folks to try to solve the puzzle. Yeah, I I, I agree um, with what Andrew's saying. You know, one of the the, the take that I have on right sizing is that it's going to happen regardless, right? Is you don't really need data to know that people or a lot less people are coming back to the office. You just need to walk into an office and look around and know that you probably don't need as much real estate. However, I think uh, what's different or where companies are going to be able to differentiate themselves is around how they optimize. That's where I kind of, again, a term that we used in the past was that's when the scalpel comes out, right? That's when you get into the fine tuning of, okay, we've done the first pass, which is let's bring the, the real estate footprint down somewhat. And then there's that remaining 20, 30%, which is then that differentiator factor between a company that retains the space versus the company that outsources or 
completely rids of their space and says, let's just use co-working space to supplement whatever office requirements that we have. So for me, when I look at this, it's not so much about the focus on the office space as I was saying before, but really taking a step back and thinking through, you know, what do you want to learn and why about how your people are using space, right? You want to create maybe even a hypothesis of what you're expecting to see in the data, because that's always a bit of an eye-opener. People often go in into something thinking this is what it's going to be, and this is, we're going to prove it with the data. And then sometimes a different outcome comes out of that. And then take the time to learn. I think that's really key is, is that a lot of people, uh, including executives, as soon as they start to see, you know, some kind of data bubble up, they're already actioning. And you need to give yourself the time to really understand what are you seeing? What does it mean? How does it apply to the business? And more importantly, what's the impact going to be to the business? Um, so, so that's related to the implications. And then I think the other thing is rather than focus a lot or more so on uh, how many people are coming to the office, think about the significance that that uh, answer might have on what it says about your company values. Like I, that's kind of what's near and dear to me is consider how important or how, you know, the decision that you make around flexibility supports uh, things like wellness in the company or how it, it, it impacts community building or sustainability. I mean, everything that you do, all the data that you're surfacing around flexibility or sorry, around occupancy and utilization that all feeds towards reduction of some kind has an offshoot in each and every one of these areas. And so if you're really gung-ho of a particular area like sustainability or wellness, you want to ensure that the decisions that you're making are aligning to those because you don't want to be saying, hey, we care about wellness, but you got to come to the office four days a week, right? Like it doesn't, it doesn't match up, right? Um, so I think that there's a ton of opportunity ahead for organizations to better position themselves, to gain that competitive advantage and to be seen as leaders and as innovators. I think they just need to look past the obvious, which is the impact to real estate and start to explore the impact to their workforce and how the workforce actually contributes to their success as an organization. And again, it all starts from the simple question of, you know, how many people are coming to the office every day? Well, it goes back to sort of the start of our conversation. You got to have the data. And I can exactly. say this has been very interesting and very enlightening and uh, very helpful to me personally. And I know to our members as well. So uh, as we wrap up, Andrew and Sandra, thank you very much for spending this time with Cornet Global today and sharing this helpful information. This is right where our members are living right now. They need this. And uh, great to have your insights uh, on the podcast today. Uh, thank you. Thank yeah, thanks for having us, Tim. It was great to be on the pod, and uh, maybe we'll see you at Cornet in the fall. Look forward to it, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you. Right on. Take care. This concludes this episode of What's Next. Want to record a podcast of your own? Have an idea or point of view you'd like to share? Visit cornetglobal.org to learn more.